Welcome to VPG's virtual water cooler chat podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence. So we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, we are going to chat with Nishima Shafi, pronouns she, her, CEO of Whitman Walker Health. Nasima lives in the DMV area. Nasima initially joined Whitman Walker in 2007. In her role as CEO, Nasima works to implement the strategic vision, goals, and initiative of the board of directors. She leads the support of the growth and oversight of the health center with a focus on the provision of high quality, affirming care that centers the community and maintains the vitality of Whitman Walker. Prior to her current role, Nasima served as both the Deputy Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer for Whitman Walker, as well as its Director of Compliance, overseeing various matters related to corporate compliance and risk management. Nasima received her bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland College Park and her JD from the University of Maryland School of Law. She is a member of the Maryland State Bar. She is also a member of Chief, a private network for the most powerful women in leadership. In 2016, Nasima was named a minority business leader by the Washington Business Journal. Nasima is inspired by the powers of community, citizenship, and empathy. Let's get started with our chat. Good morning, Nasima. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Thank you so much for um, joining us on our virtual water cooler chat. I am so privileged to say that I actually knew you when, actually. And then um, I'm just like super, super proud of you. And I'm very happy to have this opportunity for us to kind of chat and see the journey that you had taken to where you are today. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey of how you actually come to be the CEO of Whitman Walker Health? Sure. So first, Ashley, it's great to be with you today. We've known each other for more than 20 years, which feels crazy because we're the same age. And we, though this is audio, we look just as fantastic as we did 20 years ago. So uh, great to be with you today. The journey to become the CEO of Whitman Walker Health has been really exciting, incredibly dynamic, really challenging. Um, really humbling. And it started in 2007 when I joined the organization. I was hired as a compliance analyst role. I had just recently finished my law degree and I was looking to be in a place that was really connected to community. Um, And I felt that I wanted to be in a place that was connected to community because my whole life, I was really close to different kinds of community and contributing back Um, to community and to a sense of building that was really important to me. And I knew Whitman Walker from my time in college to be a place that was really important to people who were really important to me. And it was amazing. I interviewed in our building that used to be at 14th and S Street. And I was interviewed by the general counsel at the time. Um, And many, many years later, and I think five jobs later, I'm in this role and it's been incredibly dynamic. The, the, kind of, the kind of work you do at an organization like Whitman Walker in a compliance function is like an internal advisor. So I got to understand 
how we operate really early. And from that became the director of compliance and then our chief operating officer and then the deputy executive director and then the CEO in 2019. So that's some of the journey. Wow. I'm just really, really proud. Of course, I did a little bit of research <laughs> before I talked to you. And one of the things that I did was uh, looking at the Washington Business Journal, uh, the story that they did on you. And I'm going to quote uh, at the end of this, it said, I'm so uniquely privileged. My story is about using my power to bring forth others, to create spaces like my parents did for safety and sharing and for love. So wonderfully written by the Washington Business Journals. And I also understand that you were named um, a minority business leader by the, the WBJ. The next question that I would like to ask you is what is the essence of Nasima? And can you tell us a little bit about the story that you mentioned in that article about your reaction or response to 9-11? Sure. I don't remember exactly what was in the article, but I can tell you what my reaction was to 9-11. But I want to start with the if I can, I want to start with what I was alluding to in that story around um, what my parents built. So I'm the I'm the daughter of an immigrant from Pakistan, uh, the northwest part of Pakistan, who came here to get his PhD at Georgetown, and my mother, who's uh, from Trinidad, and she came here uh, to live with her aunt and help take care of her aunt's kids, um, and they met in Washington D.C. And um, while I did wasn't born and raised in this area, they they came for Muslim immigrants. They came in the wave that happened sort of after the Immigration Act was passed in the late '60s. They came first as students. They left to go back to Pakistan for a little while. My my mother didn't like it. Then they went to Trinidad. My dad didn't like it. And ultimately, um, really for family reasons, my mother wanted to ensure that she had safety in raising her children. She was concerned about some of the uh, medical system in Trinidad at the time. They and they ended up in New Mexico, and they created an environment where all of the immigrants in the Muslim community were welcome in their house. So we used to host prayers, a lot of potluck dinners. Um, we used to go on, go out into the mountains and do cookouts on the weekends, like what a lot of immigrant people of different, lots of different cultures, but a lot of what immigrant communities do. And I was really reflecting and have been over time at my time at Whitman Walker, one of the threads is I, I witnessed my parents, my father through kind of scholarship and education and his religious ideologies, and my mother through food and conversation and real kindness, and both of them through charity, create space for people from all over the world, and many times refugees, many times people who were very economically unstable, felt safe, and they could like, you know, be in their identities. And I think about the opportunity at Whitman Walker, where we are truly representative of all of the Washington area, um, but in particular in the LGBT community, it's a really diverse place. And for our staff and for our patients 
to feel seen and heard and comfortable in that environment is such, it's like the thread from what my family did. And it's an incredible opportunity for me to try to achieve in my time there. So that was part of the question that you asked. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit about 9-11. When September 11th happened, I worked at one of the law firms downtown as a paralegal. And I remember, uh, like all of us, we all have very um, unique stories for those of us who were here then. There are people who are so much younger than us now. We don't remember the day the same. Um, But I was on my way to work and didn't feel well. So I ended up staying home. But in the aftermath, you know, for the first time in a long time, I was so conscious of walking down the street and feeling unsafe not because the country had been attacked, but because I was concerned that my countrymen would attack me. And I remembered worrying about my father, like going to the gas station and some person who was trying to retaliate, taking that retaliation out on him. And also feeling deeply, um, deeply that my religion had been violated. So it was like a very complex set of things um, that happened after after September 11th and have I have a lot of stories of conversations I had with people at the time you know just this real sense of unsafety and I think America is a promise that is still trying to achieve its greatest vision of itself and in our in our incredible pluralism and diversity we are always sort of struggling with who we are and who we want to be. And I think who we are as a country and who we want to be as a country is intention. Um, It was then, I think it continues to be now. I remember I was also working at a downtown law firm, probably the same one that you were. And um, I just kind of, I was actually in the office and when when the news were hitting, I remember people were just like really not, I mean, it just seems so, so unreal. Yeah. And my reaction was just like, I didn't immediately rush out of the building. I just continued to work. I think it's classic avoidance. Mm-hmm. And then um, at some point, I realized that, I don't know if you know of anyone like friends or you know, friends of friends that had been affected. Just mm-hmm. one of my um my first firms, the they actually had um someone family member that works at the Pentagon die right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So when I went to the funeral, I've seen like how that particular persons and the family were all affected. Mm-hmm. And I've also known some of the other, I mean it hasn't come out until recently that a really good friend of mine, she is um, also um, a brown woman. And she said that her um, family was also affected. And so mm-hmm. one of her brother passed during 9-11 and I believe that she's Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, Afghanistanian. And mm-hmm. so a lot of it is like, there's so much, you know, stereotypes typical racism, a lot of things that we really quite don't quite know how to deal with mm-hmm. being, you know, similar color and being potentially 
perceived as a potential threat by the yeah. mainstream community. And that's something like, you know, coronavirus, the same thing. I'm Chinese, right. you know, <laughs> I don't know anything about this, but, you know, and so I remember that we went to um, the National Aquarium in Baltimore. Yeah. And um, there were a lot of people and um, I, I guess, you know, my mom and my friend, we went and my mom called. And then there were like little kids that basically just look at my mom and said that, oh, you know, coronavirus or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she was, she didn't really, because my mom doesn't speak that much English. So she was really affected. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. They just don't know anything, you know? But those are the, some of the things that I think as, um, I hate to say, but people of color that we sometimes have to deal with. And mm-hmm. especially... Even in the society that we are trying to advocate diversity, equity, and inclusion, so mm-hmm. I'm really, uh, I really applaud you for having the courage to stand up for people that sometimes do not have the equality in the the system. So, thank you for doing that. Yeah, Ashley, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Unfortunately, I don't think that we talk enough about the amount of um, hatred that was allowed to reassert itself through the coronavirus um, epidemic. And what troubles me is um, how how much this is like deeply ingrained in our society, um, different kinds of xenophobia and racism, and then within our own communities, the colorism you know, as I shared, I'm South Asian, and I think there's a lot of colorism in the South Asian community. And, and there's so much work to do. We're so imperfect as people, but if we can extend that kind of dignity and love to others, I, I think we can do better. But I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's terrible. One of the things that I really like about um, our reconnection, our reconnecting, and it's about how you talk about taking up space. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important because in the old days, we would probably, I don't know about you, I'm just talking about myself right now. I would rather be sort of invisible because that doesn't create as much controversy. And I'm, I was such a people pleaser. So that helps, you know, it's totally fit that pattern. But it takes a conscious effort to come out and take up the space. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you handle that as a minority business leader? Yes, and it's something that I'm still working on. I mean, even in the way I dress, I wear, I very often wear um, black and gray. I love color. I love black and gray, but part of why I dress the way I do is to be less visible. And that's something that I've really had to uh, like interrogate. Why, why are these the things I naturally tend to? And I think many, again, many immigrants, and I think many Southeast Asian immigrants and immigrants I grew up with, we sort of, you know, put our heads down, did as well in school as we could. We grew up in homes many times with rules that were different than our American non-immigrant friends. And it was like a little bit not to be seen. And part of, I think, 
the purpose of not being seen was so that you wouldn't get attention that was negative. And we, I think we have lots of examples in our communities of uh, people that we know who got negative attention, had xenophobic and racist things, you know, happen to them. So I think for good reasons, we were sort of trying to be invisible or when we were noticed to be noticed for sort of academic excellence. And um, I say a lot, my father didn't raise me to be pretty. He raised me to be smart. And, and I think that that's true and it served me really well. But over time in a leadership role in particular, not only do you need to take up more space because you've earned the seat at the table, but you need to take up more space because other people of color are looking at you. And so I think a lot about my, my responsibility to people of color to see me step more boldly into my role and into my voice so that they see an example of what they can be capable of and what they are capable of. And I feel it's important to talk about why it's hard and when it's hard and show vulnerability and authenticity in those conversations so that people understand more about what's difficult about it. You know, I've a, a story I tell about a really complex transaction that I was helping our organization go through over a very long period of time. I was in a room, you know, for eight, nine months and monthly meetings with really, really highly technically talented people. And I was the only not male identified person in the room. And I was the youngest person in the room. And I was the only person of color in the room. Everyone else was sort of like same demographic. And I would leave those meetings exhausted because I, in those meetings was um, working really hard to understand everything that was going on, respond to every point, represent the organization as best as I could and probably overcompensating in ways that they didn't even notice, but that I was, I was putting this additional kind of emotional investment that majority folks don't even know that they don't have to do. And I would leave, I mean, so tired. I would leave and feel like I needed a half hour not to talk. Like my ears would be tired, you know, but it's really important to take up space. So I have this visual in my head all the time of like when I'm in meetings, how do I sprawl out on the table more instead of sitting sort of cross-legged with my hands in my lap? How do I put myself into the space physically in a, in a way that literally physically takes up more room? I think in the article, you were talking about spreading your elbow, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did my research. <laughs> <laughs> I love that article. And I'm really glad to hear about that because that's one of the things that I generally would like to, if I, you know, do my postings and do my things. And sometimes like, am I getting too annoying? <laughs> but then people can delete the post, right? <laughs> Y'all not read it. So part of the thing is that I have to metaphorically figuring out that, you know, I should do this because I am doing, besides doing like PTAP paralegal support for practitioners, one of the things that I really wanted to do is to grow women empowerment theme and um there's a lot of platforms that does this so I wasn't quite sure at the beginning where I was going with this I was like oh okay I got some free time maybe I should just do this 
-hmm. And I started asking people if they wanted to join. And most of the people that um, I asked are very accomplished women. But I also have, I also wanted to include people with a different definition of success in life. For example, one of the one of the women that I interviewed, she had a lot of death in families, so she had really been brave going out there, live her life to the fullest. She has like this bucket list. I was like, "What's going on with your bucket list?" <laughs> but she is just out there living her life despite a lot of the family member that has um, illnesses that have passed, and so each time when she do that. She's out there. She decided to start a nonprofit organization and it's like Waters of Hope. And she basically go out there to help pick some of the terminally ill patients to do kayaking. Because when you're in the water, it has such a healing. It's really, really good for the soul. And she's out there raising her own money Mm -hmm. and uh, working with other nonprofits. And I really do love to see that because traditionally I've been with the legal industries. We know like trials, you know, Mm -hmm. people. We know how that particular life works. In the past, I might not always have my priorities straight. It's like, okay, the deadline is coming. I got to like work 24-7 to get the exhibit list yeah. together. And then it's like, I couldn't even think about how to like balancing my life because I couldn't even get my all my stuff done. Mm-hmm. So it was not until that my father passed and passed very suddenly that, and I still sort of avoid and um, didn't do anything for a couple of two, two years. And then I decided that I, I really need to do something because otherwise I don't want my life to just go away without meaning. Mm-hmm. So then I decided to come out and do my thing and wasn't really too ambitious of a goal. It was more for myself. But as I interacted with other people through the throughout the last three years, Mm-hmm. A lot of them were outside of the legal industry. And so I can kind of see a different perspective. And the VPG platform actually grow, uh, have, uh, you know, mostly women, mm-hmm. uh, freelancers, entrepreneurs, you know, different, different people that we support each other. And I'm learning and also mentoring. So one of the things that I really am very, very proud of is that this virtual water cooler chat, we started on January mm-hmm. 9th. And by the end of April, we were the finished 2023 recording. Mm-hmm. That's, That's great. crazy, right? But um, I think part of it is also the quality of the experience. Because most of the time when we, you know, we're so used to go and talk about, you know, our trade. You know, we know what we're going to talk about uh, subject matter. But yeah, it's like the technical stuff, like the how to do your job stuff. Yeah. And then I feel that sometimes women, generally speaking, because especially in STEM, you know, they could talk about the technical Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of the time, the conversation that becomes so important is like, how did you get there? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there might be like, you know, podcasts and stories that talk about that. But I didn't feel that there was, I didn't know that I've actually create, carved out a path 
for people to really feel comfortable in sharing. So mm-hmm. that has been one of the things that through listening to different stories, a lot of the people have really struggled to be seen, mm-hmm. to be heard. Mm-hmm. So I'm really happy to see how that has turned out. Now, step back to you. What is the essence of Nasima? If you have to describe Nasima, I've recently started saying, as I'm kind of thinking about my values and what matters most to me, that the, the thing that I love the most is love. Like I really love love, and it's not intended to be just romantic love at all. I really I love my friends. I love my family. I love my coworkers. I love my community. I love to be outside. Um, I love to cook. I love to garden. So it's an uncontained expression of joy about something. And I think there's been a lot more conversation maybe in the past three years, especially because of how much everyone's lives have changed through the pandemic uh, around joy. And I think for me, it's love and not joy because those two things are so closely connected. So that's sort of the essence of me. I I remember being a teenager, uh, being a teenager in high school and thinking about, which maybe is morbid, but it's true about who I am, thinking about if I were to, if I were to die now, what would I want? Like what, what would be my legacy? And the most important thing to me is that the people that I care about know that I care about them. And from a very young age have always felt that, I haven't left anything unsaid. People really know how what they mean to me. Um, and it's not just my closest people, but people that I interact with. It's important to me that I express kindness and authenticity and generosity. And part of it is that's what I want. I want to be seen and recognized. So, so yeah, I love love. It's the essence of who I am. Now, do you have any role model growing up that inspire you to take the legal path or become an attorney? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to, like, I, I went to Maryland as an undergrad because I wanted to do government and politics. I thought that I wanted to serve in the government. And it was get a master's in public policy or go to law school. And the law degree felt like it had more options and probably more prestige of some kind. Mm-hmm. I remember walking down the street with my mom and I turned to her and I said, you realize if I go to law school, I'm only doing it for you, right? And she said, huh? And I was like, wait, you're supposed to be the rational one. And my dad was the one who's supposed to put all the pressure on me. Um, but I'm the youngest of four and none of my siblings went to sort of did a quote professional path. So uh, I was a little bit their last holdout. That being said, I I think the law is, while I think our justice system is not always functional, I think the law is an incredible tool and the ability to use the law to advocate and make change and demonstrate inequity is really fantastic. And lawyers are so smart. I think I really enjoy lawyers. I know I am one, but, and we're in Washington where everyone's a lawyer, but I think just brilliance and what people are capable of doing with the law is really amazing. 
So you, I think you can very easily become a law nerd who like gets excited about Supreme Court cases and is wanting to know what's happening in the Fifth Circuit just because, <laughs> and most people think we're strange. Well, I think what I love about you is that you're using your legal skills for your advocacy, which is so important. What are some of the challenges that you had to go overcome to be that very confident minority business leader today? I know that we are all in work in progress. <laughs> some, yeah. some of them more so than others. One of the biggest challenges is actually a very technical thing. And it was my ability to speak publicly. And but that extended even into meetings where I could feel my nervousness bubbling up in my body and starting to pound in my heart and in my chest. And if I was going to say something in a meeting, I could hear my voice quiver and I would be really nervous and I would breathe to try to control my um, nervousness so my voice wouldn't sound quivering. When I was in high school, I remember talking in front of my class and my voice quivered the entire time, which made me feel like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen to me all the time. I was so embarrassed. And I did some theater in high school. And I think that helped me in my like senior, junior, senior year of getting a little bit more comfortable talking in front of people. But that has been a huge thing. And it back to... I wasn't meant to be, I was supported, sort of supposed to be quiet. I was supposed to be not seen. I was supposed to be, I was supposed to just work. I wasn't supposed to be noticed. I think that fed into some of my anxiety and fear about talking in front of people. And I've gotten so much more comfortable at it. And I've gotten so much better at, this is, I think a lot like, this is a, this is 10 minutes in your entire day. And what do you have to lose? And people People just want to hear what you're saying. They don't care how you say it, but it's been a complete shift for me. And I think it's a lot of work for a lot of women compared to men. And I think it's a lot of work for women of color, immigrant women compared to their male counterparts in part because we still have a sexist society. And I think there's a lot more scrutiny on, on women in how they, you know, we like, we would we spent so much time focusing on what Michelle Obama was wearing compared to what she was saying. And we do that with women across the spectrum. So anyway, that was a big thing that I overcame. I think part of it is that between culture and the society that cast this particular stereotypes and then in turn, women sometimes, a lot of times actually, would have this really harming narrative that you cannot do this because mm -hmm. X, Y, Z, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I actually used to say, before I start podcast interviews, and I call it a chat because I want to make people more comfortable. And part of it is a challenge to myself because I don't like public speaking. Mm -hmm. And I would tell my friends, I'm like, I am so inarticulate. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, no, I like, Inside, I would be very nervous. Yeah. And I would probably replay in my head how many times things could go wrong. Right. Which was really sad. But I've actually come a long way. I think part of it is like really knowing that people don't really care what you wear, how you deliver. As long as you deliver, 
the, right. you know, so it's the substance and we all know that we got substance. Yeah. And so I think part of it is that practice makes perfect. I mean, we're not, I am not going for perfection here. And one of the things that before we started the podcast, I was like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. You know, so of course I would learn and research. That's what I'm good at. And um, that's my job, actually. <laughs> so so then I would go and do that. And I decided that, you know, I'm going to challenge myself. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge that I did was I, I chatted. I did a virtual Waterpooler chat with a brand strategist, Sasha mm-hmm. Strauss. Mm-hmm. And he is he, he, he's a TEDx speaker. And he's so dynamic and it's so mm-hmm. agitating. I just keep watching. Right? Uh-huh. And then I took one of his class and I was like coming out, my limiting belief were coming out left and right. Mm-hmm. Because you know, that it was like year one and a half of VPG. Mm-hmm. And then he sort of like saying that we can believe in you if we don't hear you believe in yourself, mm-hmm. which is the biggest lesson. And then I was like, but how do you actually come across as believing in yourself when there are so many obstacles? Yeah. Like, you know, you have to like fight your narratives. And I, I think, I think substance wise, there's definitely there. I'm doing so many things with VPG, but every hurdle is it kind of also builds you. So some of the sometimes it's like when you have other people believing you and having your back that really helps too so and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this to let people know it's like you know the wonderful CEO of Women Walker Health Nasima comes across so eloquently in interviews and different things there's also struggle there that we all have to recognize that and just go forward with it Right. I think that's one of the reasons why I really want to do it because people like when you have the perfect, like the perfection comes out on video, it's only there, but you haven't seen the work that people like us have put forth. Right. Right. There's a lot of effort, you know, and no one's perfect. No, definitely not. And I think. Perfect. I was uh, telling a friend of mine, I said, I think my imperfection is what makes me endearing. She goes like, how did you, how did you come to terms with it? I said, because I recognize I'm not perfect. <laughs> right. So, no one is. No one is perfect. Yeah. So, and it's not, it's not that much fun either. If you're constantly trying to be this perfect figure. Tell us about Nasima outside work and what do you enjoy doing? So I really, really enjoy to be outdoors. Mm. And to your, you know, your, the story you were telling about the person who's, uh, has folks kayaking. When I think about how I breathe and my job is really stressful. It's a great job, but it's really, really stressful. My breath gets caught in the top half of my body. I don't breathe deeply. Mm-hmm. I notice that at work that, you know, if I am trying to take a minute, it, st- it stays sort of trapped in the top half of my chest. And when I get outdoors, it's like I can really breathe. I can feel my spine extend and my body sort of relax. And that could be going for a walk, going for a hike, running, kayaking, being in the garden, being with friends outside. I think there's a lot of healing for me in the outdoors. 
And I also think there's a lot of spirituality in, and I think this is of any, of any kind of religious or other ideology, this sort of recognition that, that we are, we are really tiny on this big planet and there are all these trees and stars and flowers and things around us and other animals that help can help put in perspective like your person there, but there's all this other stuff going on. And, and that's really useful for me. I also love to cook. I have recently bought two more cookbooks. I need to stop buying cookbooks. I don't need more cookbooks, but I love them. And I love like blending my own spice mix or doing whatever, marinating things and trying new vegetables. I just really enjoy it. My mother is a great cook. And back to the community that I grew up in, even though she's Trinidadian, my dad's Pakistani. So a lot of the food we grew up with was from those places. We grew up in New Mexico, which has a very unique cuisine. We had Lebanese friends, Syrian friends, Afghan friends, Indian friends, you know, Italian friends, Irish friends, the kinds of food we grew up with. I grew up with a very diverse cuisine around me, which is really exciting. And so I, I really like food. That's awesome. Well, my parents used to have a Chinese restaurant mm. back in Lawrence, Kansas. I'm obviously um, immigrant <laughs> and uh, first generations. And when we first came to the States, I think immediately, maybe after a few months, my parents decided to go to Lawrence, Kansas. I'm like, why are we going there? We don't speak English. You know, mm -hmm. we, we have at least relatives in Virginia, but why are we going there? So yeah. they didn't want us to grow up in a big city. So to avoid, basically, they want us to have a more safe life, I guess, yeah. in some way. They want yeah. they don't want us to be like influenced by the big city yeah. life. So um, so yeah, they chose Kansas. <laughs> so we went all the way over there. It's not until after I finished my master's degree, and I'm like. Um, I said, I think I need to go back to Washington because there's not much in Kansas for this, right? Right. And I was doing uh, political science, East Asian languages and cultures. I thought that I was going to like fall into think tank mm -hmm. and look at the salary guy. Not great for like, you know, research <laughs> assistant. Right. And fell into the legal profession by, by mistake because I was doing a temp job at the time. Yeah. And, um, and it was like really interesting how life kind of take you on different paths. Now, with that said, what are some of the key lessons learned that you would like to share with our audience? Oh, there are so many. I think it's important to be gentle and kind with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to set goals and think about the future and be ambitious and also to be gentle and kind with yourself. There are especially really, truly, especially through the past three years, our society has gone through an incredible amount of change and revolution and hopefully is also thinking about how, how America deals with our very, very problematic racist history that's still very present. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a lot. And I think if you were a parent in this period of time, or if you had a relationship that fell apart in this period of time, or if you lost your job, people should have the opportunity to extend themselves some grace. And we need to 
take care of ourselves. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a person who's sort of into the self-care stuff, but I am a person who believes really strongly in taking care of yourself. And that looks different for different people. So I think that's really important. And another um, key lesson that I would share is how in life, I think that we're on a journey that's about kind of crossing things off the list, but never shutting a door. So as you're thinking about career and what you want to do next, or even friendships or activities, it's how do you get like a little taste of something new? And also like, I tried that thing and I don't like it. These are the things I don't like about it, but never shutting the door. You know, DC in particular is a small place, but every profession is small and reputation is really important. People know each other and relationships are really important. So when you decide you don't want to do something anymore, you want to decide that in a graceful way so that you maintain that relationship. Um, That's definitely, I think, an important thing. Not burning bridges is very important. Yeah, it's very important. Well, Nasima, if our audience would like to connect with you, how would they connect with you? Are you on LinkedIn? I know that we could go into Whitman Walker Health. I think LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is the easiest way to connect with me. My work email is a little hectic. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I would love to reach out on LinkedIn. Um, So please feel free to. And I'm grateful for this time. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing time to catch up. And um, I really do appreciate it. And I will continue to watch out for your continuous success and growth. Thank you so much. And we might have to grab a bite together sometime. I would love that. That would be great. That would be awesome. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thank you.